Welcome to Endometriosis Summit, the podcast. If you have endometriosis, treat endometriosis, or love and support someone with endometriosis, then this is the podcast for you. In season two, we explore life surrounding endometriosis, be it your gut or connective tissue or trauma or relationships. This is the podcast that embraces all the things of endometriosis. Please join our hosts, our founders, Dr. Sally Sorrell, a pelvic physical therapist and person with endometriosis, and Dr. Andrea Vidali, an endometriosis excision specialist, reproductive immunologist, and founder of Predmune. Endometriosis and hypermobility disorders often go hand in hand. This is an amazing podcast all about hypermobility disorders, how to spot them, how to treat them, and how to make sure that you're getting the right health care for you. Join us, the Endometriosis Summit, for this incredible podcast. Welcome to the Endometriosis Summit, the podcast, where we are discussing connective tissue disorders and endometriosis. This is a very important discussion for anyone out there who has endometriosis. Joining us today is Dr. Linda Bluestein, an integrative pain medicine physician and former ballet dancer who specializes in treating hypermobility disorders and other conditions involving persistent pain. In addition to her private medical practice, Hypermobility MD, Dr. Bluestein is the founder and co-host of the podcast Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD and former co-host of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Dr. Bluestein is the Director of Education for the not-for-profit EDS Wellness, Inc., and founder and executive director of Bendy Bodies, an organization dedicated to empowering hypermobile performing artists. She has published a number of original research papers, presents work at national and international conferences, and is a contributing author for the book, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders. Welcome, welcome, doctor. We are so happy to have you. Rarely have I met someone so prolific, but yet so passionate about hypermobility disorders. Why are you so driven to speak and present and research this topic of hypermobility? Well, first of all, thank you so much for that very kind introduction and for having me on the show. I'm so happy to be here. And it really stems from my own experience, which was that growing up, um, you know, starting as an infant, I had various different medical problems, most of which now can be linked to my own um, Ehlers-Danlos. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I was diagnosed. And pretty much if it wasn't for my own 
efforts, of course, being a physician and at that time I was on the faculty of a medical school, so I had access to all the literature that I needed. If it wasn't for my own efforts, I would not have been able to transform myself from someone who you know, was really just struggling to get through each day, like a lot of my patients are, to be, being able to have an extremely good quality of life. And, you know, certainly I still have my challenges, but the difference that I was able to make in my own quality of living and functional capacity and things like that is really, really dramatic. And I know that there are so many people out there just like me who are suffering. They don't know what's wrong. Their doctors don't know what's wrong. And they're, they're really not living life the way that they could be. And so I just want to reach as many of those people as I possibly can to help them feel better. Yeah. What was it like, you know, I'm a physical therapist, so I struggled through endometriosis and I was already a pelvic physical therapist and still no one could find my diagnosis. What was it like with the demands of being a physician um, and also you have the background of being a dancer where you know your body really well to have to endure the medical gaslighting that went on surrounding um, your uh, diagnosis. It, it was really, really hard to be honest. And the, the doubt that comes from other people definitely caused me to have self-doubt. And it's terrible that the way the medical system is right now that we have to prove you know, it's like if you're imaging and your labs are relatively normal, we're not believed unless there's something else to back up what we're saying. I think especially as women, I, I hate to say it, but I feel like as females, we, we are given even less uh, benefit of the doubt. So it was really, really hard. I went through a very, um, a very dark period where I really, I was doubting myself and the really ironic part of this is I'm an anesthesiologist. When, when it appeared that everything in my life was the most perfect. So I had people looking at me and saying, oh my gosh, are you running a lot? Cause I had lost so much weight. I was, I was really underweight at the time, but then you have people complimenting you on your weight. So I was, you know, I looked like I was really fit, but it's just because I, you know, wasn't eating cause I was so unhappy. I was working full time. So, you know, and, and doing well at my career. Cause I mean, I was good at what I did, but I was miserable inside. Absolutely miserable. So, you know, everything looked good on the outside, but it was not good on the inside. So it really, this, the, these experiences that I had with um, pain and unexplained, I mean, my doctors that kept saying, no, 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 this, um, I had a Tarlov cyst. Um, and I had doctors that kept saying, nope, that's not it. That's not it. I, I flew to different doctors in the country because I was having so much sciatica type pain. Everyone kept telling me that, you know, they didn't know what it was. I had multiple different procedures and no one was getting to the bottom of it. And finally, one of my doctors said, well, maybe that could be related. Finally, somebody said, and then we ex went down that, you know, rabbit hole. And ultimately I had Tarlov cyst um, surgery but I had to you know, fly away for that too. So it was really, really hard. And I have the medical background, the knowledge, the resources that most people don't have. Yeah, it's just incredible. But I do have to say, I listened because you have bendy bodies and I listened to all the podcasts and it certainly made you find your voice because I think 
Um, similar to myself, you never wanted anyone else to go down that road alone again. Right, right, exactly. And 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 one of these days I need to write a book or something because I mean, I literally was in the operating room behind a mask, afraid to say anything. I mean, again, I took good care of my patients, but I really didn't communicate much with the surgeons. I just, I didn't say a lot. I really, you know, stayed pretty quiet. Um, so it's really ironic now for me to be using my voice like I am. So it's, it's a, it's a huge change. <laughs> so excited you found your voice because it's going to help us so much today. Um, so what are connective tissue diseases or disorders? And is there only one connective tissue disorder? Do we talk only about Ehlers, Danios, or is there multiple or how do we work that? Sure. So the way I usually explain it is that um, joint hypermobility is when people have greater than average range of motion of at least one or more of their joints. And so if we start with that as an umbrella, and you can look at this a bunch of different ways, umbrellas, baskets, buckets, whatever. But if we look at, because I'm used to working with dancers, the joint hypermobility umbrella, and underneath that umbrella, we're going to have multiple different conditions. And one of the subsets underneath that umbrella is connective tissue disorders. And what that means is that there is a defect in a gene or genes that are responsible for the connective tissue in our body, which is basically what, um, what makes up our tendons and our ligaments and, and things like that, our skin. Um, and so it could be in the collagen building blocks. It could be in a whole bunch of different aspects of that um, process. And so, Underneath connective tissue disorders are multiple different conditions, but the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are the most common type of, of um, connective tissue disorders. And there are 14 different subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. So it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. Um, some of the other connective tissue disorders include something like Marfan syndrome, Louis Dietz, osteogenesis imperfecta. I mean, there's a whole ton of different things under that connective tissue umbrella. Uh, and they manifest themselves very, very differently, um, but they have some overlapping and, and similar features because of the fact that they involve connective tissue. And how does something like POTS, which sometimes our listeners might not understand what POTS is, so you may have to define it, sure. but how does something like POTS play into connective tissue disorders? So, so POTS is, um, stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And POTS is one of the conditions that falls underneath the dysautonomia umbrella. And dysautonomia means that your autonomic nervous system is not functioning optimally. So that means that your nervous system that controls your blood pressure, your heart rate, um, your digestion, all of those uh, temperature regulation, all of those autonomic functions of the body, it's not functioning well. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome means that when you're upright, that, you, that your uh, heart rate is, is very, very fast because you have difficulty getting the blood from, uh, it, it could be due to a volume problem that you have pooling of blood in your lower extremities. And so therefore your heart is beating very, very fast trying to get blood up to your brain. So there's, uh, there's several different types of POTS. POTS can be related to a post-viral type of phenomenon. It can be related to an Im immunologic event um, like with COVID or a different type of, you know, influ influenza B, influenza A. I mean, this has been going on for a long time that people have been developing things like POTS, um, you know, with an immunologic trigger. But we know that dysautonomia in general and POTS even more specifically 
does occur more commonly in people that have Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, um, more so than the general public. And there's a number of different theories as to why that's the case, but um, we definitely know that these seem to travel together. And the so in 2017, they came up with new criteria for the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos, which is the more common type. And then if you don't meet those stricter criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that, and you don't meet the criteria for any of the other types of EDS, and it's not suspected that you have another condition, now it's considered you have hypermobility spectrum disorder. They did take POTS or dysautonomia kind of out of that diagnostic picture, because when you start to hinge a comorbid condition on another condition, it kind of becomes like a vicious cycle. And, and they're, they're trying to really tease this out. So it's, it's really a hard space for the people who are, you know, involved in setting criteria for these things. Cause a lot of people get really, really upset, understandably, um, because they think that POTS should be part of the cri diagnostic criteria for EDS and or HSD. But it, when you start to do that kind of thing, it starts to get really, really tangled very, very quickly. So those should be separate diagnoses. And there's a saying, um, I think it's called Hickam's dictum, which sounds funny, but um, that a person is entitled to any, as many diseases as they damn well please. I hope it's okay that if I curse on your podcast. <laughs> oh, it's so okay. Um, okay. I haven't yet. I think the, and we we're, we're going to, I decided we love Dr. Bluestein so much. We'll do a whole separate podcast if she finds the time for us, but the <laughs> other on, on POTS itself, but I do know from um, the COVID, the long haulers that we're seeing, I think uh, the other ed, the other side of the double-edged sword is going to be we're going to get a lot of research in dysautonomia that we've been missing for so long. So, right. I mean, one thing that that's good about POTS. I wonder, you talk about diagnostic criteria for hypermobile EDS, and I know in your book, in the book Disjointed, they talk about diagnosis, but what are some of the symptoms of the hypermobility EDS? And what are some of the ways somebody might obtain diagnosis? Because I find that people just aren't listened to. And yet when I have them do certain movements as a physical therapist, I say, you know, you could have some connective tissue um, disorder going on and then they can never find anyone to diagnose them. Right, right. And it is so, so challenging. So the, the diagnostic criteria that were set out by the International Consortium in 2017 look at a few different, there's um, several different sections to this form, and there is a link to this on my website on the media page if, if anyone's interested in you know, looking at this. But it starts with the Byton score, which people may recognize the, the um, hypermobility gang sign where you touch your thumb to your forearm and then bending back, back your fifth finger. And then do you have hyperextension in your elbows and knees? And then can you touch the palms of your hands on the floor? And then depending on what your score is for that, and then your answers to what's called the five point questionnaire will determine, you know, kind of do you meet their criteria for hypermobility or not? It depends on if you're male, female, what your age is, et cetera. And then the next part has to do more with um, tissue weakness. So do you have a history of 
you know, uh, hernias, um, especially recurrent hernias? Do you have a history of uh, pelvic organ prolapse, for example? Um, you know, have you had an echo and does it show that you have mitral valve prolapse? Um, do you have the, the, um, the signs where you can stick your thumb out past your fifth finger when you make a fist? And then can you, when you make, when you uh, wrap your hand around your wrist, can you touch your fifth finger to your thumb? Um, so looking for long fingers and toes, basically. And so, uh, which, is, which is called arachnodactyly. And I'm also looking at arm span to height. Um, and so, you know, what's that ratio? And uh, so, there, so those are some of the things that are looked at. And then some of the skin things that are looked at is your skin hyperextensible, meaning um, more stretchy than normal. Do you did you have stretch marks at a young age and without weight gain? And um, so you kind of put all that together. And then the last part is, you know, looking at family history and um, could another condition be explaining these symptoms um, and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a quite complex process that they came up with with the 2017 criteria. I know it's so frustrating for people when they cannot find someone to really evaluate them properly. Um, but it, this is not, you know, making a hypertension a diagnosis of hypertension. I use this example all the time because, you know, if you look up the diagnosis of hypertension, it's something like on two or more occasions, the blood pressure is either greater than 140 systolic, greater than 95 diastolic. I'm gonna have those numbers slightly off, but it's something like that. It's very simple. I mean, it's literally like two sentences and, and the diagnostic criteria for hypermobile EDS, because it's a clinical diagnosis, there's no lab test for this. So clinically, the doctor has to know how to do this assessment. They can't just order a test and then the test comes back yay or nay. It's not that simple. So this is a full sheet and each thing like pyogenic papules, for example, you need to know not only what are pyogenic papules, how do you assess for those? How do you know if you give them a plus or a minus for that? And then you have to add up all these scores. And so, so it's very complicated. So when people get frustrated that their doctor doesn't want to do this evaluation, you know. I, I also understand it from the doctor's side that, you know, if they're a general practice doctor, although it would really behoove them to understand these conditions because they can help so many people, really what they should be focusing on is treating the symptoms. So if it's pelvic pain or joint pain or whatever it might be, that's really where the focus should be. And the diagnosis in a way can kind of come down the road a little bit the bigger priority should be improving the person's quality of life. And then also making sure, do they need to be, do they need genetic testing? Do they have concern for the vascular type of EDS, which out of the 14 types, that's by far the most life-threatening. So if we have any clinical suspicion at all of vascular EDS, which does present itself very differently, then we should do the genetic testing for vascular EDS. So we can make sure to rule that out. Yeah, I always, we, I do my clinical research in hernia and pelvic pain in the endometriosis patient. And so, you know, the EDS, you, it becomes very important because they're getting symptoms from the hernias and the, 
you can't just fix the hernia without understanding there may be something wrong with the tissue that we have to talk to the surgeon about. There may be intricacies with how you're doing the rehab pre or post-op or how the nerve is working in that particular person. And so I always say, hey, we should look into this, but it always is very hard to find the diagnosis. So I like hearing that we should, what I say is move about the cabin as best is for the patient. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I love that. I love that phrase. And, and you're absolutely right. Once the diagnosis is, is made and not just, you know, that the patient suspects, because that is a different phase, right? The patient suspects, Hey, I think I might have this thing versus they've actually been seen evaluated. And now it's recorded officially on their chart that they have this, um, let's say hypermobile EDS, for example, because you're right. If you go in for surgery, then, um, again, as an anesthesiologist, you know, I, I want to know if this person, you know, has this con- has one of these connective tissue disorders because it is going to impact how I care for that person. It's going to impact my airway management. It's going to impact how I position that person. It's going to impact, you know, the surgeon. It should impact them in terms of, you know, how they might be sewing that wound shut, how long they might be leaving the sutures in, um, and and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, it definitely impacts even pots. Because remember, during the COVID shutdown, everybody, when they were able to operate again, was operating in surgical centers. And a lot of the endometriosis specialists said, no way with the EDS and with the POTS patients, that has to be done in a main hospital because there there are so many nuances, which that was one of the questions. You just jumped the gun. We'll get back to that. But (laughs) there are so many nuances to keep the patients safe. Um, that, that it's very important to know. I wonder, since we are the endometriosis summit, um, what do you think about connective tissue disorders and the period and their interaction with endometriosis? So the data that I have seen are very clear in that, uh, people that have connective tissue disorders or hypermobility spectrum disorders have much, much higher rates of painful periods, much, much higher. Um, that, that seems pretty clear. The rates of endometriosis, you know, it, from what I could see, there was a study that was done, I believe it was published in 2016, looking at, I think it was 386 people. Um, and they, they did not find, my, this is my recollection, they did not find higher rates of endometriosis in that group in the EDS patients. However, um, I think that there's a lot of people that suspect that it is much more common. And I think this is an area where we desperately need the research because you know, it's, it's a lot harder to prove an association between two common things than uncommon things. So if some, cause you have to, cause you can't just right. show, yeah, right. Cause you have to show, is it more common than in the general population? Not just what the prevalence is, but, but what's the prevalence compared to the right. general po- population? And we talked about before we even came on air um, in the emails back and forth that endometriosis itself, the research on who gets diagnosed and who doesn't is terrible. The bias behind the research is not so good. And then I also find as a practitioner that I think that people who have both these issues are so silenced that they internalize that silence and they're not they're not asking for help anymore. 
they're sort of resolved. I think about, you know, you said it in the beginning, how behind your mask, you were just like, you know, so quiet. You never thought you would have this voice. And I think like, that's how, believe it or not, I was quiet once too. And I think that's what, what happens. And so it becomes hard to find just the right population to do the research on, because then you also have to have the control group and you never know what you're going to come across in the control group either. So exactly. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. So in the control group, you could definitely have people that just haven't been diagnosed yet. So unless you really assess them properly and make sure that, you know, that, that you have a patient group that has EDS that you have a control group that really doesn't have EDS, you know, I mean, there's different ways that you can design various different studies, but um, these are studies that really desperately need to be done because, you know, I'm sure endometriosis is probably also underdiagnosed. Would you, would you agree? Oh my, so underdiagnosed. And there's sort of a little bit of a, a movement now, let's not diagnose, let's hand birth control pills or worse. Um, and I think it's just, it's very undiagnosed. And then the, the real kicker to all of this is it's not just EDS. You can have hypermobility spectrum disorder and, and you still can have issues having surgery from hypermobility spectrum Correct. disorder. And you still can have hernias and you still can have pelvic pain and you still can have fatigue and digestion issues. And nobody really diagnosed that because they'll go, you don't fit the criteria if you find someone to run the criteria for EDS, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. So it, it, it does. It gets very, very complicated, very fast. And yes, so many of us, um, we stop reporting our symptoms because we realize that um, it's, it's too traumatic to not be listened to. And so the easier route is to just stop saying anything unless things have become really bad. And then we finally, you know, say something. So, yeah. Or, or the mitral valve prolapse gets you and you have to say something. So <laughs> it becomes very, it's, it's very hard. You know, as a pelvic physical therapist, I see in the hypermobility crowd, a lot of pelvic floor spasms, because what happens is the pelvic floor begins to try to provide the support the muscles and um, I'm sorry, the ligaments and the joints and everything can't provide. Mm. Um, how does hypermobility affect pelvic pain in general? So I don't know a statistic off the top of my head, but my suspicion within women that the, that the percentages with pelvic pain that have some type of hypermobility disorder or some type of symptomatic hypermobility condition is, is, is very high, a very high percentage with pelvic pain. Um, and, and at least in my patient population, that is definitely very true. And it is, it's very, very challenging. I love having pelvic floor PTs to send my patients to, because I feel like that is an area where we can really get a lot of improvement and with very, very little um, downside. So, you know, what makes me crazy is when I see people either before or after surgery. And I think, oh, you know, either they want to have this surgery or they've already had this surgery. And, you know, it's not clear that they really needed that surgery or, you know, did they go to a surgeon who was pretty much going to say yes, you know, almost re regardless, just because that's kind of their, their, they're the hammer and this person is showing up as a nail. So I, I really, I like pelvic PT because unlike surgery that has, you know, definite 
definite downsides that always have to be considered. Of course, there, there are places for surgery, but I love pelvic PT because it can help so many people with pelvic pain. Um, it can be so hugely successful. And it's very frustrating to me that sometimes people are really reluctant to try it. And especially in the hands of the right pelvic floor physical therapist, which I have had, um, you know, they, the person that I went to really knew how to work with me in a way that I was comfortable with. Actually, I went to two different ones. Um, and one I ended up feeling much more comfortable with than the other. And, you know, really took a very um, methodical approach to it. And, you know, it, very customized, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So... Yeah, I think, you know, what you said where the surgeons see everything as now it's time to operate. One of my uh, endometriosis summit partners, Dr. Vidali, we know he's an endometriosis surgeon. And so one of the things is he doesn't operate on everybody. Most of the better specialists don't, but his opinion is he has to know he's going to make a difference mm -hmm. in your, and the other thing is he has to know that when he operates, your connective tissue is not going to fall apart. Right, because right. the excision is sort of invasive to your connective tissue. Have you seen EDS patients come out of surgery worse? Oh, definitely. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, being an anesthesiologist, I've worked with surgeons my entire life. In fact, I'm married to a surgeon. Um, you know, many of my friends are surgeons and, you know, they, they do wonderful things. Um, but I also think it's really important to, to pick the right one that is going and, and at, at the right stage of their career. Cause in general, you know, they tend to be, I think more um, aggressive earlier on in their career, then they see more complications and things like that. And then they tend to be a little more cautious and maybe late in their career, maybe they're starting to get a little, almost not too cautious, but maybe, you know, your, your, uh, your comfort level changes a little bit as you go through your career. So you kind of want to get somebody, in my opinion, um, in that middle zone. So like maybe they're in their forties or so, and they've had, they have enough experience that they, you know, have uh, really learned from those experiences and can really, because patient selection is everything, right? Right. right. Selecting I, the right patient. Yeah. is huge. Yeah. And I think being able to, when you can't, you know, you're not going to make a change in that person with surgery is, is having a good referral system for the person who will, of course, you know. Um, but I, I wonder when we talk about surgeries and, and particularly things that are irreversible, a lot of the endometriosis patients have adenomyosis, which adenomyosis is endometriosis lodged in the walls of the uterus. And so if you see, of course, the endometriosis specialist, a hysterectomy for adenomyosis could be what you need to go through. But what, um, how does removing the uterus, which does provide some support to the pelvis, affect the hypermobility um, person? So, so right. I mean, there are times where that where that's a necessary procedure. But I definitely know lots of people where it has been recommended that they have a hysterectomy for a variety of different reasons. Myself being one of them, actually, I was recommended to have a hysterectomy when I was looking to have a tubal ligation. And um, the, the OBGYN had asked me, well, how were your periods before you went on the pill? And I said, they were horrible. And he said, then I think we should do a hysterectomy. It's like, yeah. And I was like, 
uh, that's not what I came in here for. So I decided to, to not even have him do my tubal ligation. I was extremely uncomfortable with the fact that I went there asking for one thing. And I mean, it's one thing if he had said, you should maybe think about this. Maybe it's worth a consideration, but not, I mean, he was really kind of trying to push me well, into that. I love that he asked you two questions or one question. What were your periods like before you went on the pill? And then he wanted to make a life altering decision for you based on one. I mean, there's not exactly. a criteria, right? He didn't check to see the junctional zone. He didn't check, you know, it's nope. a good thing. And also you have hypermobility. So I'm not sure that is in your best interest. You yeah, know, there yeah. are people it is like, look, I'm not right. going to negate the need for hysterectomy and, and some people with adenomyosis, but it has to be a planned affair, right? Right, right. Absolutely. And, and a proper evaluation is, is necessary. And yes, in, in my case, this person was proposing a much more drastic surgery based on, like you said, based on one question. And I came home and told my husband, who happens to be a urologist, and he said, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. So he was, of course, fully supportive of my going to, I went to a female um, OBGYN friend of mine. She was like, absolutely. I'm happy to do the tubal ligation, you know, that you had requested and, and nothing more, you know, so. Right. I mean, it's also amazing the recovery from one to the other. Right. And so like, I always, with my hypermobile um, connective tissue patients try to prepare for the re I do prehab mm -hmm. to try to prepare for the rehab because it's really brutal afterwards. What those people that do have to have a hysterectomy, what do you suggest in the hypermobility population for preparing for it? Right. So pre, I think prehab is super essential. So rehabilitation is, you know, what we do after surgery prehab is the idea that, you know, um, say you're going in for a total hip replacement or a total knee replacement, you know, that you're actually going to try to strengthen those muscles before you go in for surgery, because the better the condition that you are cardiovascularly, um, the, you know, the more fit, higher fitness level that you have, the more muscle strength that you have, the better off that you will be afterwards. So I recommend the same, same type of thing from that standpoint for people that are, you know, going to undergo a hysterectomy. And then also I did create um, some cards for, I, I, I write letters for my patients that are going to have surgery, but I also created these wallet cards. Um, two of the, I wrote two chapters in the disjointed book. And one of them is on anesthesia considerations in people with um, connective tissue disorders and hypermobility spectrum disorders. And so I also created these cards and um, those are also accessible on my website. And basically it's something that uh, you can take to your surgeon and or anesthesiologist and to um, you know, show them these are some of the considerations. And it's written kind of in anesthesiologist uh, lingo because I wanted to fit as much as I could on a folded business card. You know, the idea is that you put this in your, it's a wallet card. Well, now if you're printing it off the web, then you're just going to be printing it on a you know regular piece of paper. But it's something that, you know, if you have a lot of problems, let's say you have um, intolerance of 20 different medications or something, which definitely I have patients that have that, then, you know, 
what, another thing I would recommend is asking your surgeon if you can meet with one of the anesthesiologists ahead of time. It may or may not be the same anesthesiologist that you get for when you come back for your surgery, but at least you can sit down with them and go through your medications, um, go through what you've had problems with in the past. If you've had problems with anesthesia in the past, um, there is some evidence that people that have EDS have a higher incidence of having resistance to local anesthesia. So what that means is that local anesthetics like lidocaine, bupivacaine, ropivacaine um, may not work as well, may not be as effective in people that have EDS. So if you, can, if you have the ability to communicate these things in advance, it's very beneficial because the day of the surgery, um, you know, they're, they're whipping in and out of rooms and, you know, I hate to say it, but it is all about the, um, the, uh, production now, like how, how quickly can we get, it's terrible. I mean, but this is healthcare, you know, there's a lot of production pressure. And so, um, I will tell you when I worked as a locum tenens anesthesiologist, like places, the places that I worked at, did they like me? Yes. Why did they like me? Mostly because I was fast. Now I was also, you know, good. If obviously if I was hurting people, then that would be a problem. But but speed is, you know, is important. They want you to get in and out of there uh, to evaluate the patient quickly because you know it's it's like you gave an analogy earlier about move, moving about the cabin. Well, the operating room is like that jet that it's it doesn't do the airline any good to have that jet sitting there with the crew and everything ready to go, but not being able to get its passengers to the destination. The operating room is the same thing. It is a very expensive um, space. So they want to be using it at the highest possible um, capacity. So I just love the ideas of the cards because when I work in ORs, um, it becomes very important. If somebody says to me, I have hypermobility, um, we look at the height of the stirrups and the angle of the stirrups so we're not going to tear a labrum. We make sure if we need to, we have an extra person on hand to do the change to move from table to table because right. if somebody has a true hypermobility disorder, you can dislocate a shoulder, you yep. can pop, right? And then what I'm noticing is, especially my hernia specialist, but definitely the higher level excision surgeons, they're now always checking positioning on the table so that nothing is bent that shouldn't be bent. Nothing is because the um, connective tissue crowd is the crowd that's going to get a little more injured. And then they're going to be like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Wait, right? Like, it's funny because my dad fits in that category because he had a surgery and his finger was bent during the surgery. And we're now like, we're now like 10 years out and, I'm, and he still needs to splint at night, you know, like, cause he sat there for so long. That was a very right. long life altering, you know, they were doing that quick, but we really try. And I love the card. So even if they don't read it and you're like, I can't believe they didn't read that it registered, right? You mm-hmm. still, that, that anesthesiologist heard you cause they're still going to take more time to intubate. They're still, they're going to do all the right. good things. Yeah. Right. And, and I would add to that. And I'm glad that you mentioned that even if they don't read it, uh, ironically, I created these cards and within a sh- very short time, I think I was probably, I had created them. I had them at my office. I don't even know if I had passed out a single card to a patient yet, but I ended up having surgery. So I took that card with me to the hospital, handed it to my anesthesiologist who used to be one of my partners, you know, 
brought two copies, handed one to the surgeon. Do I know if they read it? I have no idea, but, but you're right. They, at least, at least it became on their radar. And the one thing that I would really urge people to do is point out the top, if there are top, like three or so issues that you have. So if you know, don't, if you, Ideally, you're not trying to name 20 different things because now they're going to be like, whoa, you know, this is, this is so much, unless it's like days beforehand and you can really sit down and they're, and they seem receptive to hearing about all this. But otherwise, you know, if you have like, say your left shoulder is really prone to subluxation or dislocation, mention that you give them the card and you say, by the way, this is my biggest problem is my left shoulder. It really tends to pop out pretty easily. So when you're positioning me, just, you know, I just wanted to give you that heads up and do it in a, in a way that's, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, you are trying to be helpful to them by sharing the information because if you yeah. come across as hostile. Yeah. yeah. I think that happens in the endometriosis crowd that come across as hostile, not because they're hostile, but a you're ramped up because you're all nervous about surgery, but B no one's ever listened to you before, yes. you know, Correct. so we liked oftentimes um, some surgeons, if you tell them you have a connective tissue issue, they'll let you put yourself in the stirrups so that you're not, uh, and, and you'll be able to tell, no, no, we're not going to put my labrum that way. You know, right. you'll be able to tell right, right away. Um, and some of the better surgeons that I've worked with, they have like a whole protocol and then the team that's setting up for the surgery knows, okay, she told me in the office that she has connective tissue disorder, set it up this way. Yeah, very important. That's fabulous that you work with some surgeons that are like that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's actually a surgeon out in, in California. And there's a few others that I know that. So the way that they can do that is because the robot requires some setups. So they have kind of like better setter upper teams. I don't even know what the team is called. That's bad. But yeah. The positioning, the positioning yeah. for the robotic hysterectomies is uh, quite intense. Yeah. So I, I wonder, you know, even without a hysterectomy, people with endometriosis could go into menopause a little earlier. There, there's certainly their hormones could change younger, which mm -hmm. we don't like because it's not great for neurodegeneration. But what happens to connective tissue in the lack of being bathed by estrogen? So, so that, that is a very interesting question. The hormone connective tissue uh, puzzle is, is actually quite complex. So we know that, um, that, that mast cells have receptors on the, have hormonal receptors on the surface of them. And mast cells are present in tissues that interface with the environment. So they're present on the skin, they're present in the gastrointestinal tract, um, in the uh, oral mucosa, in the vagina, um, in all of these places. And mast cells are what most people think of like uh, involved in allergic reactions. So like in the lungs, they might be involved um, and the skin when you get hives and things like that. And those are related to um, one of the transmitters histamine, one of the chemicals that are inside of mast cells. But we know that they also, these mast cells can also respond to changes um, with hormones. So we don't know how much of that, because we know that mast cell activation syndrome, which is when uh, mast cells re react or more reactive, that those conditions also are, occur more commonly in people that have connective tissue disorders. 
So yeah, the picture is, is quite um, complex. Definitely lots of people notice um, when they have, when they start their menses, that tends to be a time where they have more symptoms. And we know that females in general have more symptoms than males from EDS. And we believe that that's because testosterone is protective and testosterone helps you to have more muscle mass, which, which is definitely protective of your joints. And in all of us, testosterone levels go down as we age. So um, that, you know, we lose that protection. Um, Cause we also know some interesting things because of when people are undergoing hormonal therapy for um, uh, transitioning from male to female or vice versa. So yeah, it's very, a, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And how does that, does um, hormone replacement for um, perimenopause and many menopause, does that affect um, hypermobility or there just isn't enough research right now? So, so it, it does affect hypermobility. Um, it can affect how much joint instability, which you know is, is different from hypermobility, right? So hypermobility refers to excessive range of motion and joint instability refers to when the joint has difficulty staying in proper alignment. And if you have less muscle mass, that's going to negatively impact your joint stability. Um, we know that when people go through menstrual cycles and they have the cycling hormones, that that can affect joint stability. Same thing with pregnancy, when of course hormones are, are changing and same thing with menopause when hormones are changing, you know, once again. Um, so we also can look at, you know, well, what are some of the different treatment options, but we have to factor into consideration, you know, what is the person's risk of breast cancer, for example, um, what is their bone mass like? What is their heart disease risk? You know, all of these things occur within one person. So when it comes to deciding, I'm not a GYN, I'm not a gynecologist. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't do hormone replacement therapy. I don't prescribe that for people, but um, I know, I do know that there's a lot of things that need to be considered before making a determination as to whether or not someone is a good candidate. Yeah, it's that we can't operate in a bubble. You know, but we have a whole body, but then it becomes so hard finding a doctor to listen to the whole body concept, Correct. right? Yeah. Well, and to me, the other, the other challenge with this is that we are learning more and more information, more and more research studies have been done, but we are becoming more and more subspecialized. So good luck finding someone who really understands all of these different implications that I'm mentioning, um, you know, because it's so hard to stay up to date, even within a fairly narrow focus. So unless they have a passion, like right. you're driven, you have a right. passion for this, right? Yeah. Right. right. I wonder, are there urinary symptoms um, associated with um, hypermobility disorders, burning, you know, incontinence, things like that? So there definitely can be. So, um, and it can be due to several different things. So mast cells are also in the bladder. So if you have mast cell activation syndrome, you can have um, symptoms, painful bladder type symptoms, urinary frequency type symptoms, um, and, and problems like that. If you could have pelvic organ prolapse, which can affect uh, things like incontinence. And um, you can have things like, you know, constipation um, for a variety of different reasons. And that can impact function of the bladder if you have problems with constipation. Um, and we also know that there are uh, painful bladder. We should, well, I don't think it's technically called interstitial cystitis anymore. Now no, we're we trying do, to- 
Right. We try to call it painful bladder syndrome, but because the summit always hosts Dr. Chung, we still sometimes call it interstitial cystitis because okay. like, that's his thing, but we right. know it's supposed to be PBS. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I find that by treating people's uh, nervous sensitized nervous system, oftentimes their bladder symptoms are, are improved. So it's extremely common for people with hypermobility disorders to have a sensitized nervous system, to have extremely high levels of central sensitization. So they become aware of every, every single sensation and, and oftentimes even things that are not supposed to be painful become painful. So they develop something called allodynia. And so that's when like the sheets even hurt to touch your feet kind of a thing. And people look at, at us like we're crazy, but it's like, no, this is a real thing. And we know, you know, we have some pretty good evidence as to why it's happening. It's, it's a chemical thing. Um, and, and people who have hypermobility syndromes, they are having joints that are coming in and out of place. They're having all kinds of problems, sometimes with nerves being compressed and all kinds of other uh, painful impulses that are going into the nervous system and sensitizing the nervous system. And there's also evidence that the top down, meaning from the brain down to the spinal cord, dampening of pain signals that, that most people have, that in people that have connective tissue disorders, that that top down dampening of pain signals is impaired. So that's also why they develop more pain. And then lastly, people that have connective tissue disorders are at increased risk of something called tethered cord syndrome. And if you have tethered cord syndrome, then the, the bottom of your um, spinal cord that's supposed to look like a horse's tail, um, the bottom of your spinal cord is kind of stuck. And so it's not moving smoothly. And that can also cause problems with the functioning of your bladder. I just want to put you in my pocket, doctor, and take you to work <laughs> with me all the time because these are the things I try to teach. I, how do you like I would to, love that. Oh, it would be great. That's why you need a book. I know you have the disjointed, but you need your own book. Well, yeah. I, I found you on Clubhouse. So it was kind of like having you in my pocket that day. Yeah. Um, I wonder how do you approach central sensitization? And how do you, like, I like to explain to patients, it's in your head, but it's not in your head. That's not what we're saying. Right. How, how do you like to approach the central sensitization? Because it isn't only about one thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's about, it's about trauma, your previous experiences. If you have pain and you've never had a chronically painful problem before, the meaning of that is going to be very different than when you've had multiple things that have turned into, you know, prolonged painful experiences. And now you get a new pain and now your nervous system is ram ramped up for that. What you're thinking cognitively is very, very different. So yes, that is exactly what I tell people is that it's in your head because everything that we, all of our thoughts are in our head. Everything that we feel is, it's all processed between our ears. It's all processed up here, but that's very different than you manufactured it. That's yeah, that's good. That's a good, I like that. I like the way you said that. Now, earlier in the season, we had Dr. Peter Prine on to talk about trauma and how trauma can make psychological triggers. And he said, it's like having books thrown on the floor everywhere. And when you walk into the room, which walk into the room could be that you have a triggering event. You have to make a choice not to pick up the same book over and over and over again. Right. It was great in his podcast. That's a great but, analogy. Yeah. 
I wonder though, are there, what kind of, I, I, I've heard you talk about movement as one of the things to break that cycle. What, um, we'll talk about movement in a moment, but what else do you like to break that cycle of the um, pain from the central sensitization? Sure. So I, you know, originally was basing this all off of my own experiences and then reading. And, you know, I, I love to read about, you know, all kinds of science. I'm a definitely a nerd, love to read all this stuff. So it's, you know, I, I'm constantly evolving how I approach these conditions, but I came up with a mnemonic that is men's PMMS because it helps me to remember what are the different buckets that we want to consider. And it's an iterative process. So, you know, I see someone the first time, and this is the way that I, you know, I kind of give them a comprehensive treatment plan. And then as I see them over and over again, over time, um, you know, especially if they're not doing great, maybe they're making some progress, but we need to make more progress. You know, we keep circling back to, okay, well, what, what are the things, you know, that we should be revising now? What I, what I really ask people to do, what I really am begging of people to do, this is the number one most important thing, keep an open mind. It is the people who keep an open mind that are going to do the best. People who say, I tried that, it didn't work. I tried that, it didn't work. You know, that I, I understand where that's coming from. And it's really hard, I know, to keep an open mind. However, sometimes things have to be done in the right sequence. Um, and you have to have the right set of expectations. If you have in your mind that anything less than being pain-free is a failure, then you're probably going to fail. But if you have in your mind instead that um, my goal is to be able to be 50% more active than I am now, my goal is to be able to go for a walk with the dog. Of course, goals are better to be specific, right? Go for a walk, go for a walk with the dog for one mile twice a day. And, you know, or to be in bed instead of 12 hours a day, to be in bed for eight hours a day, um, instead of taking three naps a day to take two. Each person's goals should be different, but it's very, very important to set these goals and to have realistic expectations. That really makes a big difference. Yeah. And I think like, look, you and I know what it's like to go to a doctor and be so frustrated and locked in that cage of really again, you're going to tell me this. <laughs> so when we do talk about lifestyle changes, we mean it, you know, and not everybody's going to want to be a meditator. Not everybody's going to want to do yoga. In fact, the bendy body type people, the hypermobility, maybe not with the yoga, maybe they need something more like a Pilates strengthening yep. activity, but you know, that keep an open mind, is just like so important to try that do you what can you go through the men's pmms with us we have time sure. for that sure yeah. okay great yeah so the um so the first letter is m for movement because for me this is the most critical piece so kinesiophobia is the fear of movement it is extremely extremely common for people with connective tissue disorders to develop kinesiophobia I had kinesiophobia. There is no doubt about it. When I first read, when I started to read about, um, you know, EDS and I read uh, articles written by doctors, Alan Hakeem and professor Rodney Graham, who are like the grandfathers of EDS, brilliant, brilliant men. And when I was reading about, you know, kinesiophobia, I was like, oh my gosh, that is exactly me. I am afraid to move because 
simple movements, doing simple little things, I injure myself. Like I sprain a finger just doing the simplest little thing. So therefore I became afraid to move. But then I understood like, like that's, that's just not moving is not a helpful strategy. If we want to move, then we have to move. We just have to figure out how to move in the most um, efficient ways, how to use the right muscles for the right things, how to develop joint stability when maybe there's a lack of that. And that's where working with a physical therapist is critically important. And I cannot tell you how many times I hear from patients, I tried that and it didn't work. I tried that and it made me worse. And I say, it's like dating. You know, you don't always get the right person on the never get the right person. You don't always get the right person on the first try, right? And, and you have a responsibility as the patient to communicate with your physical therapist and to let them know how things are going and to say, Hey, can I show you how I'm doing this exercise that you prescribed to me? I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. And if you don't feel comfortable that this physical therapist is really listening to you or, you know, modifying things appropriately, maybe there is a problem. But in many cases, I think it's a lack of communication. I think it's really, you know, um, it, it boils down to, you know, sometimes physical therapists are very like, okay, this person is here for shoulder. Uh, I was recently in physical therapy for bilateral shoulder instability. Fortunately, my physical therapist knows me quite well because the last time I was in for uh, groin pain. And so when I would show up and say, okay, I was doing those exercises, but now this happened, she treated me like a whole person. And, you know, if, if they're a physical therapist listening, which I know they listen to my podcast, so hopefully they're listening to yours too. That's the other thing that I would urge them to do is to treat the EDS body as, as a whole person. And I know you may have some restrictions because of the prescription that they, they were sent there under, but in a lot of States it's, it's open access for physical therapy. So I would hope that you would, at least to the extent that you're able, you know, treat, treat the person, because it is true that if you have EDS, and you go home with a prescribed exercise that you could flare something else up. Now, that doesn't mean that that person didn't know what they're doing. That doesn't mean that that wasn't the right exercise for you. Maybe you weren't doing it the way you should. Maybe you tried to do too much too soon, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, I'm licensed in three states and I, I don't tend to take insurance. So it gives me a little bit more freedom, but I'm amazed when I lecture, I go to a clinic that if the prescription in, in some of the clinics says shoulder, like I would literally be down treating the foot sometimes because if the body needs it, the body needs it, but a lot of clinics won't do that. And so I think it's very important. And that's why I might've interrupted a little to bring that up to your therapist, right. That, you know, and also that you can uh, shop with your feet basically and and go to another one, you know? Yep, yeah. exactly, exactly. And and I recently went to a physical therapist that does not take insurance either, and it's very much like my practice. Uh, you know, I I don't I don't take insurance either. You really can't take care of people with EDS and, and take insurance. It's just they they don't value what we do. And just like how I approach things, he was able to take care of my needs and not be worried about satisfying the needs of the insurance company. And I thought that was really, you know, the relationship is just between him and me and not him, me and the insurance company with the insurance company being the boss. Yeah. yeah we, that we, we could have a whole other podcast yeah, on how I feel that the, and an endometriosis is really bad right now. Right. Um, because they only want to cover ablation. They don't want to cover excision, but 
I mean, we can't, you're the boss, your body, not what your insurance company will pay for. And hopefully we'll continue to have programming on um, teaching people how to empower themselves with that. So I didn't mean to veer off while you were explaining. <laughs> and I'm sorry, that was a super long answer to the first letter. And I promise the other letters will be we much shorter. Care. Okay. We love you. It's great. Okay. So the second letter is um, E for education. So that's exactly what we're doing here. When you understand about neuroscience, for example, um, you know, you realize that, that, oh, maybe I'm not crazy. This is just how bodies work. And my doctors, they just, they don't understand and they don't have the time to really get to know me. So that's why, you know, we're kind of having this disconnect because, you know, they're looking to help me in a quicker way um, because that's how their system is set up. And, and what I need is somebody to really listen to me and, and you know, validate my experience and, and do something very different for me. So E is education and is nutrition. And I urge people whenever possible to really, really be honest with your doctor about your nutrition. Most doctors aren't even going to ask about it. So it's not a, you know, it's not like you're dealing with this every time, but when, um, when you are working with a doctor who does ask about your nutrition, be honest with them. And if you can work with a registered dietitian nutritionist, because they will really be able to provide expert guidance because there's so much that we can do with nutrition to help with pain, whether it's from EDS or, you know, or some other condition, um, there's a lot we can do with nutrition and it's very nuanced because it depends on if you have mast cell activation syndrome or where you're at with that. Um, you know, like everything, it's a spectrum or like most things, I should say it's a spectrum. Um, so, so N is for nutrition. Okay. Men's, uh, S. So the first S stands for sleep. If you are not sleeping well, you are not going to feel good. And I have patients who sleep horribly. And a lot of them are going to sleep at three, four, six in the morning. That's when they first go to sleep. And so the first thing that we do is work on improving their sleep and getting their sleep, you know, more tied to a proper circadian cycle, super, super important um, because the nervous system knows that you're not sleeping well. And, and definitely these lead to other, other alterations. We know that people who are third shift workers are more prone to inflammatory conditions like um, cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, diabetes, um, you know, obesity, and, and even people who live with people who work third shift, they are also at increased risk of these conditions. So you're basically putting yourself in that position of, of third shift um, when you sleep like that. So, so I, I work out with improving people's sleep. So that's the men's part. Um, the P stands for psychosocial. It's extremely important to um, provide support whenever possible. People often are not supported, not surrounded by people who are supportive. So instead, if they're, if they're not, we need to find, you know, whether it's a support group or a counselor, um, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, depending on where they're at with things, the, the uh, prevalence of PTSD is actually very, very high. Um, in many instances, it really is most appropriate for someone to be seeing a psychiatrist and they're not. Um, and unfortunately, you know, getting a psychiatrist, it cannot be so easy these days. And a psychologist can be challenging sometimes too, but there are some really good apps actually that can be very helpful that can at least provide some um, information. And then sometimes, you know, I can either help with that and, or their PCP um, as well. 
So that's what the P stands for. And then the next M stands for modalities. So whether it's acupuncture, acupressure, um, ultrasound, uh, TENS, um, you know, other kind of neuro uh, electrical modulation, th things of this nature that can be very helpful. Um, red light therapy, you know, these kind of things. So that's what the M stands for, that, that M. And then the next M stands for medications. Notice that medications is way down on the list, okay? This is because oftentimes people have tried so many different medications and they say that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. And again, I urge them to, to let's, let's revisit this, you know, if you had terrible side effects, okay, I want to know how is it dosed and that kind of thing. Maybe it was just dosed improperly, but um, maybe things just weren't done in the right sequence or you didn't have the right support going into it because it's like a 10% rule, 10% from this, 10% from this, 10% from, from this, and then eventually they add up to meaningful improvement. Oftentimes, and I was guilty of this for sure myself, I kept looking for the one thing that was going to fix all my problems. I kept thinking, there, it's out there somewhere. I just haven't found it yet. And there's one thing that's going to make all of this go away. And that really, that one thing really doesn't exist. I think that happens in endometriosis quite a lot because they think the one thing is going to be excision of the disease, which is one very important thing, but they don't realize the multiple drivers of pain. And then they're they're right. I did this one thing and it didn't work. And I, you know, and then it, it, kicks off a whole other problem and yeah, seeking that one thing. And sometimes it's, it's a combination of, if you do have to go the medication route, a combination of meds. So taking one doesn't work either. Yeah. Right. And diet isn't, well, I gave up gluten, but I'm eating Doritos, you right. know, diet isn't one thing either, you know, Correct. the Doritos aren't delicious, everything in moderation. But, you know, right. it isn't just one thing. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the last letter, the last letter S is for supplements. So sometimes, you know, as someone is working through their nutrition plan, we may prescribe supplements as part of their, um, you know, improving their you know, maybe micronutrient deficiencies that maybe either are suspected or demonstrated through more sophisticated lab testing than what, you know, your typical doctor, um, you know, I've, I heard it called this the other day. I thought this was a great term, like big box medicine. So, you know, you, you go to your traditional, you know, doctor and they, they run a CBC and a CMP and call it good. Um, but there, there's more sophisticated testing that we can do to see if, it looks like you have micronutrient deficiencies and there's some different supplements that we can use to help improve uh, pain. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it, that is such a comprehensive program. And so it just brings me back to, it's not going to be a single light switch that's going to fix it all. How do you um, counsel a patient about that? Or what happens to me now is they know they're coming to me. They got to go along. Not I go with them, but they sort of have to go along with the ride. But how, how do you counsel a patient that it's going to be sort of an overhaul? Right, right. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising. Sometimes I'll have a visit with somebody like the initial visit. And I think, oh, this went really well. They seem completely game. They're all on board. And then I don't hear from them again. And then I'll see them two years later. And they're like, 
oh my gosh, I'm doing so much better. And I, I had this one patient who came to me in a wheelchair. I only saw her one, I see her once or twice. And um, I saw her a couple of years later and she's walking and, you know, is she perfect? No, not for sure not, but she's at least not in a wheelchair. She was labeled as having conversion disorder. Um, and, and basically even after they labeled her as having conversion, she was 16 years old, labeled her as having conversion disorder, and then just didn't even offer anything. And, um, and I looked at her and said, you deserve someone to give you the benefit of the doubt. And here's what we're going to do in terms of a workup. And I found another neurologist that would see her. I actually, it, I hate to say it, but there were several neurologists that, that declined. I tried to get her in to see a neurologist and several of them were like, no, I don't have anything to offer. Um, anyway, so, so sometimes, you, you know, you don't know why they didn't come back, but like you said earlier, sometimes it's because all they needed was that one visit. And other times there's people who, you know, I think, okay, I'm not sure if they're satisfied with the rate of progress that they're, that they're making, but they, but they keep at it and they're open to the information and they're, you know, they're ready to keep going. And then life happens to everyone, right? So there's people who, you know, maybe they're doing better and things are going quite well, or as well as, you know, can be expected. They're making some really significant improvements. Something happens, someone in the family dies, they get in an accident or, or whatever, they need to have surgery, they fell or, you know, something. Um, and, and we just, we know that that's just part of what happens. The path is not linear, like, right. Oh, yeah. Ever. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> For sure. That is not a linear path. You know, everywhere you go, like everybody thinks like, it's just the trend now diet is going to fix it all, which clearly we listed seven things, not just nutrition, but what's that line between working on somebody's nutrition and feeding somebody's obsessive compulsive eating disorder part to them because you can get crazy. Like I have also SIBO and the first doctor was like, go on the low FODMAP diet. And there was, no, I mean, I was a nut job. And then if you have um, painful bladder on top of that, there's a diet for, and you're down to like eating. I mean, it's awful. So, right. Um, and I could see a different mindset might not just go to another doctor and ask for a different approach, but how do you, how do you work with your patients? So it doesn't become, um, obsessive. Yeah. You're, you're that, that is a great question. And especially because I work with dancers who, you know, they're, they tend to be perfectionists and, and dancers and other aesthetic athletes. So dancers, gymnasts, ice skaters, um, you know, uh, artistic swimmers, that kind of thing. And so, yes, they tend to be perfectionists. They tend to be very focused on their weight anyway. And so it can really be uh, very, very challenging. So I also try to remind them that um, the gut is, is also referred to as the second brain. And the connection between the brain and the gut is hugely, hugely significant. The gut makes um, a huge amount of our neurotransmitters. So, so it's not just the food that we put in our mouths. It's how we eat. It's, it's, you know, are you standing at the kitchen counter and eating very, very quickly because you have to run out to your next ballet class or because you have to run, you're a student and you have to run back to school or, or whatever, um, or you have to run to work, or are you able to and you have to deal with people's uh, actually they're what's realistic for them, right? So telling someone who can't afford to buy organic produce, they don't have a, a, a store within, you know, 
50 miles of them that has organic produce. So we have to say, okay, well, what can you get that's frozen or canned or, or whatever? You know, each person is going to have their own set of circumstances that they have to deal with. But that's exactly right. We try to find that space that is, okay, what's, what's realistic? And let's practice some self-compassion here. Let's not get Let's not go crazy on ourselves, but let's also recognize that what happens up here affects how our gut functions and how our gut functions happen, affects how, what happens up here. So it's really important that we be, um, you know, treating ourselves with kindness and activating our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest, digest and restore part of our nervous system. Because if we're not activating that, then we're gonna have more difficulty digesting our food. So sometimes doing things to help support the vagus nerve can be, can be helpful. Very, very interesting. Cause I do that visceral manipulation. So it's like very uh, interesting for me to hear you talk. Our viewers probably not so interested in that, but you know, it makes a wonderful segment to, you know, what, what should, should someone know about self-care when it comes to um, EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorders, what, what is that connection to their lives that they should honor? So the number one thing that I would say is be kind to yourself and to trust your own instincts. That's two things, I guess, technically. Um, when, when I was going through my you know, biggest difficulties and I, I had fallen off a bike and I'd hurt my knee and I had a bone bruise and I had torn a bunch of things. I tore, I basically tore everything, but my ACL, I torn everything else. And, and my doctor was very dismissive of me after he scoped it and was like, you know, he didn't find anything else. Of course, you can't see microscopically what's going on with these tissues. And at this point, I'm like six weeks out of the surgery. And he scoped me really because I was still having pain, but I had a huge bone bruise in my femoral condyle. So I wish that he had said to me, you have a bone bruise. It's going to hurt just because it still hurts. Doesn't mean that we should scope it. But instead he said, let's scope it. And I was like, okay, sure. Not really realizing. And then, you know, he didn't find anything really. So then I was at work. I, I think it was the next day or two days later, I was at work. Uh, yeah, of course, I, there was no ability to take time off and I'm limping around at work and I run into him in the doctor's lounge and I said to him, you know, my knee still hurts. And he yelled at me in the doctor's lounge in front of all of my colleagues. He screamed at me and I won't scream because it's good. It would hurt people's ears, but he screamed at me. I looked inside your knee. There's nothing wrong with your knee. And that, and that was so psychologically damaging to me. I went into the locker room and I, in fact, I'm getting, I can feel myself getting emotional. Just, just I was going to say it's long-term yeah. damage. Yeah. I cried and cried and cried. And it took me years to get over what he said to me years. And, you know, if, if I had though, instead been like, well, that's an inappropriate thing to say, because, you know, I'm a physician too, and I've been in plenty of knee scope surgeries. And yes, there's a lot that you can see, but you can't see everything. You can't see inside the bones. You can't see inside the ligaments. You can't see inside the tendons. Um, but instead I was like, you know, I, I just was so traumatized by what he said to me. And I want people to learn from my experiences. I want people to do it differently. I want people to have the confidence in their knowledge of their own body, especially women, 
to have confidence in the knowledge of their own body to say, okay, it may or may not be worth trying to work with this person and have a communication. Or you know what? You may have to cut ties and find someone else who will listen to you. But don't let what that person says to you cause you more trauma. Because when we doubt ourselves, that's when there's more problems. He was doubting me, obviously. But I didn't have to doubt myself on top of that. And that's what I did. So... I think we could have a whole, one day, maybe I'll do that in a panel because the endometriosis summit is a patient practitioner town meeting. So we're panels, mm-hmm. but on surviving doctors, narcissism, and the way they speak to you as a patient, because I actually had to go to therapy over the way doctors spoke to me. One particular doctor spoke to me and negated me and like laughed in my face when I mm. said, I wanted to use donor eggs. Like it was a big hilarious thing that I should want to be. I mean, and Mm. I think about, and I also see the orthopods sometimes speak to people old days. It's gotten better. They've gotten a little better, but you know, they, that's, you know, they speak, there's nothing wrong in front of your colleagues. And, you know, it's just, and that's just horrific where we have to recover from all that somehow, I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So parting thoughts about, you know, the direction of hypermobility and pelvic pain and what you want people to know, or, um, you know, what are your parting thoughts? My parting thoughts are that there is hope and there is help. There are people like you who are doing incredible things, bringing information to people. And, you know, this is new. This is not something that was there. You know, when I was going through what I just described, there there weren't resources for people like there are now. So I I feel very confident that the future is going to be better um, from the standpoint of, you know, like you said, people who do that kind of thing like, like my orthopedic surgeon did to me, I don't think that's going to fly in the, in the future. I think that, um, you know, people are really starting to find their voice and speak up now. And so I think that there's hope both from the standpoint of the culture improving and also from the standpoint of the science improving. So I think that there is hope and there is help out there and hopefully COVID, if nothing else that comes out of it, Hopefully COVID will make it so that we have more access, that we have the ability to work across state lines in some kind of fashion. You know, we obviously need to prioritize patient safety, but maybe it's going to make it easier for us to tap into experts in different parts of the country or the world so that we can be bringing care to the patient rather than making the patient fly all over the place, making people that are sick and that they don't have the money or the time to be going to all these places Instead, maybe we can be bringing care to them. So I think, I think the future is bright. I really do. Yeah, I am so excited that you joined us. I want everybody um, struggling with hypermobility issues to reach out to you. How can they find you? We're going to put it in the blurb, but tell us how they can find you. Sure. So I go by hypermobility MD on all the social places, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Pinterest. Those are the 
five that I have. Uh, oh, I Clubhouse too, I guess. Uh, so I haven't been on Clubhouse as much lately, but um, yeah, it, it, Clubhouse is super fun too. So I guess actually that's six places. And then my website is hypermobilitymd.com, all one word. And uh, so people are welcome to uh, check out my, my website. And then the podcast is Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And we are always looking for guest ideas, feedback. Um, so I would love for people to, you know, connect and let us know what they think of, of our podcast and, you know, what suggestions that they have. So it, it is a fascinating, if no one's listened to it, go listen to it now. Um, it's great, especially because you're supposed to be out walking or moving. It's a great podcast to listen to, um, while you're doing that movement, that's good mm -hmm. for your health. And uh, very interesting, very, very good topics. I hope everybody will. It was one of my good finds when I was studying for the podcast. Oh, I man. hope that you'll come back and join us. We had a great time and I hope that everybody will um, follow you. Maybe we'll even set you up in our clubhouse one Monday. We, um, but I really thought this was absolutely fascinating. And there is so much more to learn and so much more to delve into. So this is just our beginning of our hypermobility MD and endometriosis summit relationship. I love it. I love it. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun chatting with you. Like what you hear? You have two options. One, hit the subscribe button and never miss out on an episode. Two, become a supporter of the Endometriosis Summit your small donations go a long way for ensuring open and honest discourse about endometriosis. Link to support on our Anchor profile.